This year, the Black Youth Agenda is talking about creating queer affirming learning spaces, making sure that all young people, in particular queer and Black young people, feel safe in their schools. Um, Mm -hmm. It talks about gun violence and how we can move beyond policing to address gun violence. And it talks about housing. Um, It talks about housing and both from a, a homelessness perspective, but also from a kind of larger housing and stability perspective. Welcome to the Egg Gap Evolution Podcast. I'm your host, Mariah Phillips. You can call me Mariah because that's my name. And I'm thrilled to have you on this journey with me and all of the spectacular guests who jump on the podcast to give you more options for educating children so that children have more options for building a magnificent future. The Egg Gap Evolution Podcast is a digital community where parents, educators, and innovators drop the details on how they are using their lives to help children explore the vastness of education beyond the textbook so that we can close America's education gap together. In return for bringing you this show every week, we just ask that you always find a way to share and use what you learn on the podcast to enrich children and families everywhere. Alrighty, without further ado, come along with me to meet our very next guest. Today on the show, we're speaking with Samantha Davis. Samantha is the founder and executive director of Black Swan Academy, a nonprofit organization in Washington, D.C. that concentrates its efforts on empowering youth through civic leadership and engagement. Samantha's motivation to start the organization came in 2012 following the murder of Trayvon Martin, which we'll explore further shortly. But you should also know that in 2019, Samantha started the Sam and Tamara Davis Family Scholarship Fund with her siblings to do something really great, which is to support graduating high school seniors in her hometown, Pittsburgh, who have a parent with a mental or physical disability and or who were raised in a single adult household. Samantha's work has been recognized by American University, Pittsburgh Public Schools, Boys and Girls Club of Greater Washington, D.C., the National Urban League, and Essence's 2019 Woke 100. So, Samantha, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for joining us. How are you? I am great. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. When we first land on your website, we see, you know, images of youth marching for Black Lives Matter um, and ending police brutality and policing, uh, period, especially We'll talk a little bit later about policing in schools, but their faces are focused as they march. So for those who may not be familiar with the term civic engagement, which is a big term for your um, organization, Mm -hmm. does marching, as we see in this image, paint the full picture of what civic engagement is or does even more fall under that umbrella? Yeah, that's a great question. So civic engagement we use as a umbrella term to capture both marching and protesting and what some will say uh, civil disobedience. Um, And also um, under civic engagement, we have volunteering and community service. We have mutual aid. We have community research. Um, We have electoral politics. And so when we talk about civic engagement, we are defining it very broadly as simply individual or collective actions um, that are designed to identify and address issues within our community. Okay, got you. So a lot of different things under that umbrella. Um, And so 
it's no surprise, it's not, you know, headline news that there are a lot of issues that come along with being within the Black community um, that affect the Black community in American society um, across the world, but specifically with your organization in America. And I mean, we saw even recently with the, it's, what is it, today's May 17th, 2022, we saw recently with the shooting in Buffalo, uh-huh. you know, there, um, a lot, a lot happens. And so, when it comes to standing up for what you believe in, whether it be black people or anyone of any ethnicity, um, when you see these things happen in the world, it's, it's easy to be angry. And especially for black people, anger and sadness are emotions that can come up for us a lot when these different events happen. Trayvon Martin, Buffalo shooting, the list goes on and on. So you and your organization have done such a great job at making beauty out of mess. So how does one manage the big internal emotions that motivate change and the strategies required to create change without being paralyzed by anger and sadness? Yeah, that is a great question. Um, And one that really honors our humanity, right? I think so much of Black Swan Academy is about honoring our full humanity, which means the rage, which means the anger, which means the grief and working with young folk to one, build really authentic, trusting, loving, um, care-based relationships um, Mm -hmm. so that we can be vulnerable, so that we can talk about those very real emotions. um, And then we can move into action um, for how do we want to be, use the emotions to fuel us to make make change. Um, And so I do think in, in many ways, by tapping into those emotions, we're able to see each other as as human um, and answer the question of what is it that we can collectively do together to be in this together, to know that it's not just me who experienced and witnessed um, what played out with Trayvon Martin. It's not just folk in Buffalo who are grieving Um, what took place there over the past week. Um, But we are indeed in this together. um, And there's so much beauty and power that comes with that realization. Uh, Yeah, that's a good point. Um, You know, we see a lot on the internet, especially social media. Now, of course, there's a lot of craziness going on. But I think one of the things that can be really good about how easy it is to communicate um, nowadays with even strangers is like you said, we could be feeling similar emotions and there's a place to let that out. You know, there's a place to hear that other people are feeling the same way. And it kind of reminds me of therapy in general, where Mm -hmm. if you're, you know, you're allowed to, you allow yourself to release those emotions, then you can somehow (laughs) the way the universe works, um, you know, then there's room for thank for, uh, a solution or something to come about, you know, for people to join together. So, um, thank you for sharing that. Cause that's something that we can use no matter what age we are. Yeah. And speaking of ages, <laughs> we can all agree that touching on topics of politics is one of the fastest ways, especially if we're at a table with adults who, you know, the older folks get, we can get, have our opinions, you know, really stand firm in what we do believe in, don't believe in whatever. Um, and it, politics is one of the fastest right. ways to potentially ignite heated conversations among strangers and even at the Thanksgiving table. Um, <laughs> so nowadays, and some folks choose to completely avoid the topic of politics and others put their Twitter fingers to work. Mm-hmm. And so 
you said, Samantha, you were like, okay, <laughs> we're going to have a whole organization that not yeah. only talks about politics, but involves children in the community matters as well. Um, and but So why did you do that? Like, why do you think it is so important for Black youth specifically to engage in politics at such a young age rather than shying away from it? Yeah. Um, I love the way you phrased that question because uh, it is so <laughs> real. Uh, I believe, um, and it really is just how we, how I was brought up um, in, in Pittsburgh and the folk around me. I deeply believe that if we're if we're looking to get free, if we're talking about liberation, if we're talking about true safety, um, then the only way for us to achieve that um, as a society, as a people, is to invest in youth leadership, um, is to invest in young folk. Uh, we, young folk, especially Black young folk, face the brunt of all social um, outcomes. Um, and they, because they're the ones most impacted, they're the ones most directly in, involved, they're also the ones who are the experts on what works best, on what change um, actually they need uh, that will address any concerns or issues that they're going through. And so I was, even as a younger person, um, was seeing the, the very intentional um, response from adults to keep young people out of grown folk business, right? To keep them separated from the dinner table, quite literally, um, in, mm -hmm. in black households. Um, and wanted to interrupt that a bit to say um, there there needs to be an intergenerational approach, and where Black Swan Academy comes in is to focus on um, the young folk, to focus on building their leadership. Um, to invest in their ideas and, and their solutions. Yeah. Have, I wonder, have, has any, or have any of the students that you work with ever mentioned, you know, after being in your program or during approaching adults in their lives about political topics, have they said that they gotten any sort of feedback at all? Always, <laughs> always, <laughs> uh, especially with, I would say even the middle school, we work with middle school and high school age young folk. And so, when middle schoolers are starting to get introduced and or kind of practice and learn that their voice is powerful, that they do have amazing ideas, even around these big issues, um, they start testing it out. They start testing it out with adults that they trust um, and or are, are close with. Um, and we most often hear from the parents or from the teachers of the, the young folk to say, you know, such and such has really been um, outspoken, um, has really been sharing their thoughts on these issues. And for most, it's a positive experience. But we mm -hmm. also see it in our everyday work um, with young folk pushing up against power, which, with young folk sharing their ideas, sharing their concerns, calling people out or calling people in um, around how their decisions, particularly like policymakers, how their decisions are impacting their lives. And there are certainly a group of folk who don't like it. There are certainly a group of folk who try to silence or erase or devalue um, what young folk are saying. And there are others who join in 
um, with them and who are their strongest allies. You know, I grew I went to grew up and went to school in the 90s and it was just so popular, so toxically popular to be like the you were the praised student if you were nice and quiet. You know, if you if you didn't if you didn't voice your opinion, if you went with the flow um, and, you know, considered problematic if you did voice your opinion, whether it be about a po- political topic or at all. Mm-hmm. And so what's so awesome about what you're doing is is the fact that you're you're encouraging these these this youth to say, hey, look, I don't care what age I am at every age. I have the right to speak up voice my ideas. And honestly, you know, one of the purpose of this podcast is like, we do believe that children um, at every age can contribute to longstanding issues in the world. Like why not get those fresh ideas out there um, and give them the space to do it. So that's awesome. I want to learn, and I'm sure the rest of us want to hear about your history because to have a mission, you know, with your organization that is so um, big and important, what where'd you come from samantha like <laughs> uh, we know you're from pittsburgh but like could you talk to us a little bit how about how you were brought up your education um so hometown of pittsburgh born born and raised um i grew up watching my mother um direct a nonprofit in the hill district of pittsburgh um so historically Black um, and historically marginalized community in, in Pittsburgh, working with young folk, very much strong emphasis on education, but also both from my mother and from folk um, like my church family, there was a strong emphasis on education, but also a strong emphasis on leadership, um, on civic duty. And so went to a church called Grace Memorial Presbyterian Church on the, in the Hill District. And at the time, it was just full of like literal civil rights activists, folk who um, were responsible for ensuring that Black people had access to housing, that Black people had access to financial institutions, um, that we weren't being um, extorted around utility bills. And so it's literally all I've known and all I've witnessed. Um, and in many ways, me coming to DC um, and starting Black Swan Academy and, and navigating the world in which I choose to navigate is like an honor um, of them. And, and my idea that they, and they poured so much into me and that the community of Pittsburgh, the community of DC, um, Black people more broadly have poured so much into me that um, this is kind of my my mutual responsibility to continue to serve and support and build up um, one another in that same way. You can really see the full circle in your story um, where, you know, you were poured into, you were inspired and that's, I did not have the privilege of like growing up around, I'm sure they were in Baltimore, but they just weren't in my close circle, black yeah. activists and really seeing that up close. I can only imagine how powerful and like enriching that was. And um, I'm very excited to see, of course, you know, what's happening with Black Swan Academy today, but then to see tomorrow's world and, you know, the, the, um, multiple movements, whether individually or collectively that happen because of the work that you're doing um, and that your team is doing. Um, And so 
Can you tell us more about your journey from Pittsburgh to DC? So I went to undergrad uh, in a at a school called California University of Pennsylvania. Um, so about an hour away from Pittsburgh, I went to undergrad, um, and then shortly after undergrad, I did some organizing work in Pittsburgh for a short time, and was just kept coming back to this sense of like probably frustration of regardless of how much work was happening in the community, regardless of the services, the tutoring, the mentoring, um, the community work that was happening, it kept feeling like we were in this cycle, Black folk, Black young people were in this cycle of not getting the resources that we needed of being oppressed in various ways of experiencing state-sanctioned violence. Um, And so I wanted to come to D.C. um, to study policy and better understand systems. At the time, it was just very much rooted in my personal experiences, and I didn't understand the larger context of systems or policies or law um, and how those impacted our our day-to-day lives. So came to D.C., um, in 2010 uh, to study public policy at American University. I got my master's there. Um, and while I was there, I was also starting to work in the advocacy organizing spaces here in DC and continue to see this like very alarming gap of really being in decision-making spaces with only white folk, really, um, white men, mostly, um, and very few, there were literally only like three younger black people um, that were in those spaces with me. And so was using all of that uh, to inform how I wanted to go through school, how I wanted to kind of set up my my life here in DC and get rooted in um, the black community here. You make a good point. Well, I mean, it wasn't even just a point. It was your life experience and reality. But the fact that when it came to policy and decision making and systems, you did see majority white males. Um, and that's especially interesting. I don't know about the population of D.C. now, but for a long time, D.C. was a majority black city. Um, I know where I am, Baltimore, 63 percent African-American. And what, by like 2025? the whole United States will be majority people of color. Yep. Um, and so, you know, to hear that as early as, as recent as when you were in college and moved to DC to study systems and get into politics, that that was still the case. Clearly there's a cause for change. Um, the call for change because the people being affected by an issue are the most important people to have a voice in coming up with a solution for the issue. Like that is just, yeah. you know, that that's what it is. So it was, a, and it was a weird dynamic because NDC, well, you know, we used to be chocolate city. Um, there's still certainly remnants of chocolate city all throughout DC. Um, and still today, like the majority of elected officials are black folk. Um, Mm -hmm. are black folk. And even then, um, in in 2010, 2012, it was majority black folk um, on city council. Our mayor was black, right? But what was happening and what people often, or at least I didn't realize is the the folk who are informing the elected officials, the folk who are advocating, the folk who are like going to 
uh, City Hall, the folk who are researching issues, all of those folk were white. Mm -hmm. Um, And so at least all of those folk that elected officials paid attention to, I should say, were white folk. Um, And so that was where the gap was that was quite alarming to me um, in the meetings, in the in the bylines, um, it was white folk. Yeah. And I, um, had a friend not too long ago who was running for city council in Baltimore and I was helping out with the campaign and I didn't, I, exactly what you're saying. I didn't realize that there were citizens that so greatly influenced or, you know, informed or did research and like fed opinions and, and sort, you know, ideas to politicians, you know, we hear about it sometimes, but especially maybe it's the black community that it, in my community, it just wasn't something that was talked about often. We only really talked about the officials and the you know the elected officials that we saw public facing. And it can e- be easy to just think that, okay, that person, you know, this, this person came up with these things that's coming out of their mouth and on the paper because this is what they believe and thought up. And, you know, that may or may not be the case, but what's so important, like what you're saying, is to realize that citizens have so much power to influence um, elected officials, but Mm -hmm. not all citizens are taking advantage of that. And it's not through a lack of wanting to, but sometimes there is an education gap and sometimes there is an access gap to being able to do that. So is that something that youth focus on in your program as well, learning how to do that sort of research and like uh, know how to get in touch with um, in those rooms that make those decisions? Exactly. Um, And young folk in Black Swan, quite often, like we, we both teach it to them and then we work with them to apply it um, through them running their own issue campaigns. Um, And so we, we talk about the legislative process, we talk about different tactics and tools for advocacy and organizing. um, And then we work with them to develop what we call our black youth agenda, which highlights the issues that they feel are most pressing, um, and the ways in which they want to go about changing those issues through policy, through practice, through um, building capacity within their own communities. Um, And we work with them throughout the year on getting as close to making that happen uh, as possible. It, it does a couple things in that it, one, places the agency back into the youth, um, that you can speak up about this, that you can make a change. Um, and it allows them the creativity and the innovation to, to think about non-traditional avenues to make that that change. Um, I talk about the the white folk who were consuming the Wilson building, our, our city hall here. Um, and while those are very traditional avenues, you know, meeting with elected officials, voting, um, testifying at hearings, those are pretty traditional avenues, which folk do learn how to access. Um, there's also so many other ways that we can create change within our communities. Um, that includes the protests and the marching, but that also includes right, creating graphics and writing your own reports and writing zines and, and distributing them to your neighbors. It includes mutual aid. Um, and so we we work with young folk um, on both, like all of these spaces are yours. Um, mm-hmm. You can be at all of these decision-making tables, whether that is 
in front of an elected yeah. official um, or whether that's in your community um, creating and building up the world that you want to see. I love that part about um, how you have the youth create their own reports and what you said about, you know, writing up your own thought pieces and informationals and graphics, because it kind of um, goes into a conversation I was having with a couple of acquaintances during the white acquaintances um, and even friends during the peak of the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020. Um, they were asking, you know, you know, folks checking in, do you need a virtual coffee, this, that, and other? And my response was, I, you know, thank you for reaching out. However, it is best for you to go to talk to your family members, your community members, you know, and have, I think that those those personal conversations about pressing issues affect us all when we hear it coming from somebody, you know, who we know versus trying to, not that it's bad to reach out to the general public of course it's good we need messages proliferated however you know what if you're trying to make change and you're not looking to the person next to you or across the street from you you're really missing a good opportunity to, to yep. you know to connect and um get the ear of a person who is most willing to listen and let it and let it go on from there so i love that um you guys are doing that there and i hope that folks are listening no matter what your organization or mission is focused on that um, we really listen into those different ways that Samantha just um, told us are great ways to communicate, um, you know, research issues and and beliefs and causes that we want to um, push forward. And so um, speaking of, you know, pushing forward with a cause, making sure we're reaching the people who can gather with us to make things happen, change happen. Um, you, and I spoke back first in 2021 and you shared that 2012 was a bit of a wake up call year for you to start Black Swan Academy after Trayvon Martin's life was tragically taken. And um, I mean, someone would probably have to either not be a U.S. citizen or living living under a rock to not know Trayvon Martin's story. But just as a refresher, um, he was a 17 year old African-American boy from Miami, Florida, who was fatally shot uh, by George Zimmerman. Um, and he, Trayvon Martin, um, was, you know, walking, walking in his neighborhood, you know, it wasn't like he was doing anything considered criminal, even if he was, I don't think that is cause for shooting a, a teenager. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, that's the story. And so, um, for you, Samantha, I'm wondering, could you walk us through some of the emotions and epiphanies that you experienced when you first heard about Trayvon's murder? Yeah. Um, I mean, I like, I'm sure most black folk, um, in the, in the country was just a lot of grief, a lot of, it felt extremely disheartening, um, and in many ways dehumanizing, not just by the, the murder, um, but then how it played out right in the, in the trial and to see the very, what felt like blatant and overt acts of anti-blackness and the ways in which, um, he and other young people, black young people were just criminalized in the media and the courts. Um, I feel like even beyond the murder, that that was the piece that really felt like the injustice. Um, mm-hmm. the, the injustice was certainly the fact that a non-Black person can uh, 
follow, um, harass, and kill a young teenage uh, Black boy, certainly an injustice. And then to see the ways that the system compounded that injustice and compounded that violence over such a long period of time felt Mm -hmm. extremely dehumanizing. Um, I was in grad school at the time. And so the converse, there were conversations being had in policy school, right. Around like how this is playing out um, and what it, what it meant kind of in theory. And at the end of all of it, the black folk, which are very few of us, the black folk that attended those conversations and were in those classes were like, this is racism. This is systemic racism playing out in front of us and policy experts and media and society struggled to even name that, to Mm -hmm. name that it it was simply racism in the same ways that we see what's happening in in Buffalo um, and that we've seen what's happening around so many of the mass shootings that have been occurring this past year. Um, Folks struggling or completely denying just to call it what it is, anti-Black racism. Um, and that was really difficult for me to to realize um, at the time as like a 24, 25 year old black person studying system, <laughs> studying policy. Yeah. And what you said about um, it, you know, folks being hesitant to name the events that follow Trayvon's murder as racism that is something that, um, like you said, is common because I think as black people, you know, it's clear when racism is happening, but when growing up, especially in the American school system, a lot of times when you do get on the subject of slavery, it can be easy to imprint in your mind that racism has to have, you know, has to look like 1952, you know, they had, you know, a dog chasing black people down the street, fire hydrants, you know, a battalion of police and it's like it doesn't have it's not going to look the same every time it shows up yep you, you know that's what systems are all about and um you know not to hop on a soapbox here but i think you know i love that you brought up that point of um the importance of recognizing when racism is not named because that's how sneaky it can be. You know, that's how sneaky it can be. And then how hard it can be to catch and to address if we're not even open to naming it, just because it doesn't look like we, we as a society might want it to look right. Um, And so clearly through all that you experienced and saw in the conversations you had in grad school at the tender age of 24, um, what, what sorts of, well, I want to talk a little bit more about the actual programs that are happening at Black Swan Academy and, you know, your work in schools. You have a civic leadership and engagement programming. So are there multiple programs under that? Is it one program? And um, either way, what sorts of activities do students participate in? Yeah. So it is multiple cohorts under one program. Um, And so we work directly in middle schools. Um, We're in about five um, or six middle schools right now in Washington, D.C., where we um, work with young people two to three times a week um, around a curriculum of pride, purpose, and power, uh, talking to young folk and working with them to identify all of the reasons and all of the ways they should be proud about who they are and where they come from start getting them a better understanding and practice around what the issues are in their communities and how they can have an immediate impact 
um, and then going into that um, piece around power, uh, how are we changing systems, um, looking at policies, looking at practices, looking at uh, community resources. Um, and so we operate that program within schools. And then we talk about building a pipeline of Black youth civic leaders. And so that pipeline follows our middle schoolers into high school, um, where they start doing more kind of collective and community work um, coming from a multi multitude of high schools um, here in D.C. and putting together larger campaigns um, such as like the Police Free Schools campaign or um, at one point they were doing campaigns around uh, changing or lowering the voting age. Um, and so all of that is supported through the Civic Leadership and Engagement Program and we kind of just follow their lead um, to, to expand it um, outside of the walls of the schools. Awesome. What um, I'm wondering about the you said it's called a police free schooling program. I mean, um, campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for that campaign, could you maybe talk us? Some of us who may not know, talk us through like what is currently going on with policing in DC schools, and you know some of the solutions that s- the students have proposed. Yeah. So Police Free Schools is a nationwide campaign. Um, And so the issues of policing in schools are all across this country, um, where really since 94, 1994, but even before then, but since 1994, um, you've seen this double down approach led by um, Joe Biden, in fact, to funnel federal money um, to local school districts um, to pay for police um, to be in schools. And so what has happened here in DC um, is that we have really created a culture where um, we rely on police within our schools, like actual police, armed police officers to be in our schools, uh, really to respond to issues of adolescent behavior Uh, to respond to issues of trauma um, or survival needs where um, young people are um, being met by police officers instead of met by counselors or social workers um, or the aid uh, that they actually need uh, to address any underlying issue. And since 2018, Black youth um, and educators and parents have started to organize to call for a removal of police from schools um, and instead an investment in care-based resources um, and tools that are preventative, that are trauma-informed, and that are equitable. As of two weeks ago, um, the council here in D.C. has recommitted again, because they first committed last year, recommitted again to phase out police from schools um, so that they are completely removed by 2025. Um, But there's a gradual phase out um, that starts this school year. Um, And it is coupled with uh, the continued investment of things like mental health supports, of uh, paying community members to do safe passage to make sure young folk are getting to and from home safely, um, to look at violence interrupters and other models that prevent violence versus just reacting to it. 
Um, so yeah, that's that's police free school. That's kind of what's going on here in D.C. And just to name that there are folk all across the country who are kind of fighting the same fight. So the idea is that um, the, uh, part of the solution is that, you know, instead of saying, OK, you know, tomorrow we're going to remove all police from schools is that we're going to allocate money towards putting systems in place or resources in place in order to make sure that whatever issues it was first thought policing could fix um, that we're putting things in place to support students so that they have the proper resources to work through whatever issues are causing and creating an effect um, that had the police presence there in the first place. Is is that pretty much it? That's right. That's right. It is very much a um, scale up, scale down approach that's happening Ideally, simultaneously, I I will be critical and say that I do not believe the D.C. government invests as radically as they need to in Black youth um, or communities. Um, Mm -hmm. But yes, the the demand is to be creating new systems and policies and resources um, so that young folk actually get the the care and the love and the, the support that they need to thrive. So how do how would us as uh, folks who may not be as deeply engrossed in the work as you are, how do we find out about stuff like because um, I saw you have some resources on your website, but clearly like you have perspective on this is what the D.C. government is not investing in black youth. And this is what, you know, maybe you have opinions on what should be invested. Um, clearly, you guys have done research on how folks can get involved in the police free schools movement. So. Where could folks get more information about the whole thing? Um, let's, you know, they latch on, they get what's going on here. They want to hop in and support um, and maybe even get active. How does that happen? Yeah. So when it comes to police free schools, um, there is a really simple website called policefreeschools.org. Um, it is operated um, by Alliance for Educational Justice and Advancement Project, who are really holding um, the the National Police Free Schools Movement, they, a few years back, produced a report called We Came to Learn um, that both can be a amazing resource for folks just to learn more about the impact of policing in school, um, as well as the, the movement and all of the ways that young folk have continued to fight against it. Um, and it also, though, has really tangible, I think, really tangible tools um, and activities that folk can start to be in community with with others, can start having the conversations um, with people in their schools um, or in, in their households uh, so that we can do the, the internal work um, of unlearning uh, some of the ways that we too, we all have like a, a little police in our head um, that we too mm-hmm. can start unpacking and unlearning um, the ways in which we police young folk day to day. Yeah, I'm on the website now and it looks like there are a wealth of resources and that even they have um, partner organizations around the country. So, yes, folks, definitely go check it out. Um, And Samantha, before we wrap up, I wanted to learn a little bit more about your civic um, youth civic leadership summits, because I'm assuming that is different from the leadership program. So what's the difference between the after school programs and then the summit? Yeah, so the summit is actually coming up 
on Monday. Uh, so all of our resources are dedicated to the summit right now. Uh, so okay. the summit is a one-day experience where we essentially uh, take over a school day um, and we work with young folk in that school. This year, we're at McKinley Middle School here in D.C. in Ward 5. Um, and we take over the school day. We invite uh, Black professionals from all professions um, to come and meet and talk with the young folk to do really interactive and creative workshops with the young folk, um, where they explore the career. Um, and then they also have really intentional conversations around how does this said career um, impact Black folk? How have I been able to be a scientist and make an impact in Black communities? How have I been able to be a musician? How have I been able to be a lawyer? A We have a, um outdoor enthusiast. Like, how can you, regardless of what field or profession you go in, how can you still be committed to racial equity? How can you be committed to um, giving giving back, quote unquote, um, or building up and moving forward uh, the the black community, regardless of of what it is that is your profession? Ooh, that's awesome. It kind of it kind of um, <laughs> brings me back to, in a way, to what you said in the beginning of our conversation where I was talking about feelings of anger and sadness. You know, how do you navigate that to make change? And you were saying by allowing ourselves to be human. Yeah. And, you know, that's such a great, I love how you present like real life, um, I will say, you know, success cases of Black people being in a profession, I'm not sure if all the people presenting are black. I don't know. I don't know if I missed that. They part. Are. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, being in their chosen field and being like, Hey, I'm allowed to thrive as a scientist, to thrive as an outdoor enthusiast, thrive as a hairstylist, whatever it yeah. is. Yeah. And still make sure that, you know, the mission that I believe in as far as black liberation, um, you know, having a voice, seeing real change happen is happening within my field. Um, and, you know, have that person bringing about that change within their lives, which is so important for our black children to see, because I found, you know, growing up, it, you have to fight really hard as a black student, black yeah. youth and as an adult to not be compartmentalized in society or, you know, even Absolutely. within yourself, you know, hey, put yourself away at work you know, and come back out once you clock out. No, you get the right to stand for what you believe in um, and to, you know, live freely and be human in every single part of your life, because that's what true freedom is. Um, And so does the you said the summit is happening at a particular school this year. Does it rotate schools each year? It does. Um, We we pick a different school that usually a school that we already have a relationship with, um, but we pick a different school to to partner with um, and we we build it around like the the interests and the needs and the desires of the young folk in that that school and it is just like a beautiful amazing day we usually have a keynote who is from dc um that has been a a, a leader in some respect um who comes to share their stories we have um entertainment we do a little concert feels like a, a strong word but we have we have musicians or entertainers come out um it's, it's a fun time and then we also commit to doing one type of civic engagement activity collectively um and so this year we are going to be creating hygiene packets um for the 
distribution into our communities afterwards. And so um, that's going to be really exciting as well for young folk to, to see their collective action um, that day already, like getting them a sense of this is what it means to to be civic minded. This is what it means and how I, even as a 12 year old person, have the ability to make an impact um, in someone else's life. Yeah. And, you know, piggybacking off of what you said, literally just said about, hey, I, as a 12 year old person, (laughs) have the ability to impact someone's life in a big way. Um, I want to zoom out a bit and ask, like, what do you believe the world is taking too long to realize about the way that we educate children and how, um, of course, you know, we've talked about Black Swan in detail, but how maybe in one or two ways specifically is uh, Black Swan Academy changing that? That is a big question. Um, <laughs> I So what comes up for me immediately is I feel like where we go wrong all the time with young folk is we, whether we realize it or not, I think people, I think it's intentional, is we, we strip young people of their agency and autonomy at a very early age in which mm-hmm. we have to make, we as adults have to make the decisions for you. Um we restrict what they can do, what they can say, how they can dress. And I feel like that is the start of where we go wrong with the development of young people, particularly Black young people, whereas a Black person, regardless of your age, part of our oppression is also stripping us off of our autonomy and of our agency. It's also telling us that we can't talk unless we're spoken to. It's also telling Mm -hmm. us that we need to wear our hair a certain way. We need to dress a certain way. And so we do that with young people all the time. And it it starts, young people internalize that very early. um, And then it's kind of coupled with what they're going to experience in the overall society um, as being a black a black person navigating the world. So if we create spaces where young folk are free to be their full authentic selves, no matter what that means, no matter what mm-hmm. that looks like, and they're able to practice practice and assert their agency, they're able to practice and assert their autonomy. We then develop young folk who already have this strong sense of freedom, young folk who are secure and confident in their full identity, um, and then can navigate the world in such a way um, that is best for them and also best for their like larger community. Yeah, that is also important. And um, wrapping it on up here, can you recall a time where a child's words changed your life? Um, and do you remember how you felt, <laughs> what went on? Young people's words change my life every single day. Um, truly <laughs> I'm do. sure for so, you, that's a lot to sort through. <laughs> um, the the last, what sticks out to me now, um, so I mentioned that every year, young folk in Black Swan adopt uh, what we call our Black Youth Agenda. And on the Black Youth Agenda, this year, um, for folk to get some greater context, this year, the Black Youth Agenda is talking about creating queer affirming learning spaces, making sure that all young people, in particular queer and Black young people, feel safe in their schools. Um, Mm -hmm. It talks about gun violence and how we can move beyond policing to address gun violence. And it talks about housing. Um, It talks about housing and both from a, a homelessness perspective, but also from a kind of larger housing and stability perspective. 
And so one young person in a town hall conversation and in his closing remarks said, once we realize that the root of all of this is the lack of healing, the root of all of these things are not allowing people to feel safe um, in their communities, in their, in their homes, in their schools, um, that all of this is connected to trauma, Mm-hmm. That then then we have um, then we have a more holistic approach and we have a more dynamic conversation where we realize that these issues are not single issues right these issues are all connected to each other and mm-hmm. that grounding and healing and trauma to me was something that I even as someone who is like in this profession that I often jump right past. Um, and it was just a reminder of in all the ways that we move, especially as black folk, the importance of committing to healing, the importance of committing to care um, and joy. So that was the most recent connection that a young person made um, that impacted me. Wow. I'm going to, I'm, that is, you have just, tried to open up a whole can of worms that I'm not even going to open up right now. Because <laughs> we'd be on here for another two hours. But yeah. that is that is so, so important. It's the healing from the trauma and it's really is generational. And um, trauma is one of those things, especially in the context of Black Americans, formerly enslaved um, in America, it, it can be so elusive, some of the trauma. And, um, you know, it's revealed day by day by day. And just like you're saying with the police free free schools, one way um, to assist with some of that is for, you know, counseling and mental health services. But there's so much more to that. And I don't doubt that through the work that you're doing through Black Swan Academy, that the students um, that you all are helping to enrich there will are, are and will continue to play a big part of our collective healing. So thank you so much, Samantha, for joining us today. And for school decision makers, parents, caretakers, everybody, (laughs) anybody looking to get involved with Black Swan Academy or donate, where can they go ahead and do that? Where can they learn more? Yeah, blackswanacademy.org or follow us on our social media channels at Black Swan Academy. Okay, perfect. Well, you all heard her. Samantha, have a wonderful day. And guys, I'm going to drop in the show notes the resource for Police Free Schools, Black Swan Academy's website, and their social media handles. And Samantha, thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. So what'd you think? How will you take what you learned today on the Ed Gap Evolution podcast to make sure that more children and families know that they have more options for building a magnificent future? If you like what you heard and want to get notified when the next episode goes live, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll notify you when the next episode is out. Don't forget to check the show notes where I share information on today's guests, and yes, we do have a website. You can always pop in on us at www.eggapevolution.com. Again, I'm Mariah Phillips, and I leave you with this. Embrace the evolution, y'all.